0: All right, hey, welcome back, everybody. Um, It's great to see everybody here. Um, Kia ora, kia ora everyone. Um, hey, we are going to jump back into our Revelation series. We are now on to week three. If this is your first Sunday with us, this may seem daunting. It's quite the book to jump into, but hopefully we're trying to make it as not scary as humanly possible and as much about Jesus as humanly possible because that's what the book is about. Um, so, again, just letting you know where we're at. Um, we're right in the middle of John. Has, he's seen his first initial vision, and now he's got these tailor-made messages to these seven different churches. And right now, we're going through and reading them. And last week, we talked about how it's like when you hit reply all on an email and everybody's involved in everybody's business. That's how each one of these letters are. So every single church gets to read the mail of every other one. And everyone's like, "Whoop!" there's no hiding amongst these communities. So last week, we looked at Ephesus. And Ephesus, their main challenge was they had done such a good job holding on to their faith holding on to the truth of the gospel, despite false teachers and crazy people who tried to come and lead them astray. But they'd held on, but the challenge was they held on so tight that they became overly rigid and they had lost their love. And so the first church is challenged to remember their love for one another again. And so today we are jumping into the next letter to the next church. So we're gonna listen to the text together. And again, when you listen to it again, Revelation is strong, the language is gripping, so as we read it, just try and imagine what it would be like to be the church hearing these words for the first time. So we come into Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at verses 8 to 11 um, today. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days, Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Mm -hmm. Week two. And so we we come uh, together to the church of Smyrna, which... I said to the group this morning, I've tried to be real adult about it, but the word is just really funny, and I'm always like, mm, Um Nothing spiritual, I just think it's a funny word. Uh, before we get into that, uh, when I was 16, um, 15, 16, I, I'm always, when I was a kid, I was always a bit of a daredevil trying to push the limits and try and see how far I could do things and try things differently, and particularly like physical things, like try to do adventurous things, jump off of things and would often come close to killing myself and, and killing others. It was something I really enjoyed. And so, um, as you do. Anyone else? Just me? All right. Um, thank you, Dan and Dan. <laughs> Might be a Dan thing. Uh, when I was 16, uh, growing up in Mexico, we, uh, we would often go to this beachside city called Acapulco um, for like holidays and relaxing times. And in Acapulco, there was this amazing tall tower. And it was this tall tower where you could do bungee jumping. And ever since I was a kid, I was like, that's it. That is going to be me. But it was always real expensive, eh? Like, at least in Mexico, it felt like you had to put a lot of money for like two minutes of enjoyment. And my parents were always like, nah, 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 use your own money. And I was always really sad about it, like, mm. but one day, we had this team visiting from America, and uh, I mean, not to brag, but I'd been pretty cute, and I'd been pretty nice to the team. <laughs> they'd kind of like, liked me. They were like, this kid's cool. I'd help them out. I was translating for them. I was going with them like when they were doing their work and their ministry stuff, and they quite liked me. And so it was coming near the end of their trip, and I just kind of ever so casually, you know, when we were driving by, was like, oh, man, look at the bungee jumping tower. Oh, that'd be so cool to do one day. It's just real expensive, but man, one day I'd love to do it. Just, I'm a good church kid. I know how to work it, right? And um, so just ever so gently put it in there. And some bleeding heart mother on that team was like, you know what, Colin? We're going to bless you today. You're the son of a missionary. I'm pretty sure Jesus is going to love us more if we're nice to you. Um... <laughs> So they said, you know what, Colin, we are going to pay for you to go up and jump off of this thing. And I was like, yes, I was pumped. I was like, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. I'm stoked. So when we're getting up there, my heart's beating, and I'm like, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be awesome. I'm so excited. This is going to be so much fun. Um, What I didn't count on was how slow their elevator worked. (laughs) Because as you begin lifting up the tower, it is so slow. And you have so much time to contemplate. Why did I make this decision? <laughs> As you're slowly moving up and the ground is getting further and further, you start. You're like, "This is gonna be awesome. This is gonna be great." And then you get like 10 meters up and you're like, "Yeah, this is gonna be cool." And then you get like 20 meters up and 50 meters up and you're like, "God, this was a dumb idea, <laughs> right? <This> is, <laughs> I, I hated this, right?" And so got up to the top of the Bungee Tower and, despite all of my bravery and my bravado and me being like, this is going to be the best. I get up to the top of that tower, and they've cinched me all up and everything, and I'm, I'm standing at the ledge, and life felt pretty good on the, the, the footstool, eh? Like, you're supposed to jump off, and I looked around, I was like, it's a beautiful view, it's the ocean, there's like the towers, there's like the hills in the background. I'm, I'm pretty good here. <laughs> I'm pretty comfortable here. But then the pride got behind me and everyone was like, you have to jump. And I was like, I don't want to jump. I'm terrified. (laughs) This is a miserable idea. Who would want to jump off something for fun? This is dumb. This is painful. I want to get down. But my pride keeps me up there, right? And for me, one of the things I remember so clearly is this feeling of right before I jumped and right after I jumped. So, like, right before I jumped, I was relatively in control. I was standing on a platform, I had things to hold onto, the world was orientated correctly, everything made sense, and then as soon as you do that jump, now, I would have loved to have said I did one of those great, amazing jumps that you see in the videos, like full-on, like swan-dived off the edge. I was a bit too terrified, and so when I jumped, I was like... (laughs) 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 And I literally just like squatty potted over the edge. But I remember just the the difference of feeling of being up in a place of control and safety versus as soon as you tumble over that edge, how different the world looked. Like everything was spinning, you're so out of control, you can't dictate which way your body goes. When I watched the, the, someone videoed it, when I watched the video of it afterwards, I realized I came super close to death. Because I squatted and fell down weird, it meant I had lots of rotation to my jump. So I like rotated down, and then when I bounced back up, I kept rotating around, and I rotated fully upright again. And like a moron, I was going like this <laughs> with the cable right next to me. And so there's this moment when I almost brushed the cable and like wrapped my arm around it, and then would have gotten like, it would have been miserable. Not fun, but I didn't know that. I was just screaming my head off. Uh, but I just always remember the difference of being up in a place of control, versus being totally out of control, and how different everything looks from that perspective. And the reason I talk about that is because on today's text, perspective is everything. And I think we will have difficulties reading it if we're not aware of the perspective we carry when we engage with this text about Smyrna. Where we sit affects what we hear. And the audience of Smyrna, I think, will be quite different to what the perspective that we are used to. So Smyrna, (coughs) quite a cool fancy city, like real flash. Um, It had amphitheaters, it had uh, baths, it had aqueducts. It was a city of quite like rich history. So by the time this letter's written, Smyrna had been a city for about four or 500 years, like ages. Like New Zealand is only like what, not even 200 years old? as like a proper nation, Smyrna's been going on for centuries before that. So they have history, they have culture, they have identity. You have families that have moved up and now are like key families in the city. Like this is, this is kind of the world that they're in. And so Smyrna's quite wealthy, quite like, hmm. You know, it's like that feeling when you drive up to the fancy places in Auckland and you're like, this doesn't feel like taurang anymore. Smyrna was like that. It was super flash. And what you find is, um, so they're over here. Here's the seven churches. We looked at Ephesus last week. You're going to find we just go around in a circle. So we're going up to Smyrna this week. And um, yeah, they had um, been a city for a long time. They were the birthplace of Homer, you know, Homer and the Iliad, born in Smyrna. So they felt pretty good about that. So they had a lot of things going for them. So it's in the context of that wealthy, rich city, we come to the letter to this church. So it says in, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, where it starts, um, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. You'll notice in every single letter to the church how Jesus is identified as different. In the last letter, he was the one who walked amongst the seven golden lampstands, which has this feeling of God's presence is close, and he knows you. He's, he's walked that journey with you. Here, you've got this image of power of Jesus. Eh? He's the first and the last. Smyrna's been around for a while, it's got some reputation, but Jesus precedes Smyrna and exists beyond it. And He has died and came to life again. Jesus represents himself as an overcomer. And you'll see why it's important as you go through. He's come to life again. In the next verse, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan, which, again, as a side note, can everyone say synagogue of Satan? Synagogue of Satan. (laughs) Feels good, doesn't it? Whenever there's a church you don't like, that's your go-to insult from now on, like, this is a synagogue of Satan. Anyway, um, (laughs) what you find here is a real rich city, right? Flash city, and then you come to the church, and it's the complete opposite. They're poor. They don't have much. They don't have influence. They have afflictions. Now, we're not quite 100% sure of why they're poor. There could be a lot of reasons, could be a lot of different things, but it probably has to do with the second hand, which is the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So to understand that, you have to understand that in the eastern part of Rome, um, when we think of religion, we separate state and religion quite quickly, don't we? Like here's the state, they make their decisions. And here's religion and we do our thing in the corner and we separate them but in rome it wasn't like that they overlapped each other all the time gods and deity and religion was intermixed with politics in a way that was really practical so say you're a farmer and you need good rain well then it makes sense that you would go and sacrifice to the god who controls the rains, right and say you're a merchant who's selling wood and you go and you make sacrifices to the God who looks after the merchants who sow would. So if you wanted the city to prosper, you participated in religion for the well-being of everyone. Now that gets complicated when it comes to Jews and Christians. Because funnily enough, Jews and Christians, by the Romans, were considered atheists. Which is a weird thing nowadays. Nowadays we feel like Christians and atheists are the ones who are fighting. But 2,000 years ago, the Romans saw Christians as atheists. Jews as atheists because here's this whole pantheon of gods and you say none of them exist? None of them? And you only believe in one? You guys are basically atheists. But the Jews had managed to in Smyrna, because it's an old city, they had built up a bit of a reputation as being good members of society and still participating. And so it meant that they didn't have to participate in religion because they had this little exception that said, you guys are Jews, you're weird, that's fine. You don't go sacrifice we get it, we understand. So when Christians started springing up, we lived under that umbrella. We were considered like a weird culty offshoot of Judaism. But if people asked who were the Christians in the community, everyone was like, oh, they're basically Jews, aren't they? Which, again, different, but the perspective is really different. What you find is that the Christians begin to upset the status quo of the city. So Christians more and more, like remember, if we saw at Ephesus, there were so many Christians that they began to shut down the temple worship. People stopped offering sacrifices of silver and gold and it began to disrupt the city. The same thing is happening in Smyrna. As the church grows up, Christians stop participating in idols, they stop um, (coughs) giving sacrifices, they stop working with the established customs, they stop participating in religion, and it starts to make everybody a bit nervous. And so the Jews, more than anyone, feel nervous. Want to know why? Because these crazy, culty Christians are compromising their safe zone. All it takes is a few more Christians, and pretty soon Rome's going to remove our protections, and we're going to have to do everything the same as everyone else. And so Christians are actually a threat to us. You you see, see how that's happening? Christians become a threat to the safety of the Jews. And so that's why you see Jews, that's where it talks about, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. What's most likely happening there is that the Jews are trying to distance themselves from the Christians and they're going to the Romans and being like, hey, keep it on the down low, but there's some Christians here that aren't worshiping to all the deities and they're a little bit crazy. They're not one of us, not one of us. Just go, just go, just go, just go, sort them out, right? And what sort them out means in that time is that they would be jailed with no trial, Um, no judge, no jury, they would just be in jail. They would be tortured and if they repented and said, okay, we're not Christians, then they could go free. If they said they were Christians, it was pretty likely that they would either stay in jail for a long time or could easily be executed. And so you've got this Christian community in Smyrna who are just trying to do the right thing, but the covering that they live under is being taken out from them. And so that's why John calls them the synagogue of Satan. Now we think of Satan as the, the beast against God, like God's the good guy, Satan's the bad guy, right? But the word Satan just means the accuser the accuser of the brethren. And so it's no wonder that John uses that language around the synagogue, because what are the Jews doing? They're going to the Romans, and they're accusing the brethren, the family of God. And so that's why you're getting the strong language here. And so the Christians are facing incredible persecution. And so the message to them comes, don't be afraid. Which, if I were a Smyrniite, a, a Smyrninian, Smyrna, Smyrnin, smyrna a smyrna All right, if I were from Smyrna and that letter came through, I would be hoping, can we just put a full stop right after Don't Be Afraid? That would be great. Like, Don't Be Afraid, full stop, next letter. That would have been lovely, wouldn't it have been? <laughs> no, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, I tell you the truth. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. When you hear this message, you can understand why Jesus introduces himself as the first and the last day, as the one who has defeated death and is now alive again, because that's someone they need to know they're following, who's been through that and can come out the other side. This is a message about persecution saying, look, it's not gonna get easier. Now, when it says 10, little fun fact for you, in Revelation, numbers are super weird because <laughs> there's lots of them. And um, what you find is in apocalyptic literature, when we think about numbers, we think of quantity, right? Like I have 10 cats, I have 10 dogs, and I have zero life. Like that's normally how we think about those things. <laughs> it took you a while to get there. Um, but in apocalyptic literature, numbers don't mean quantity. When they put a number in there, they're not trying to tell you how many of something there is. What they're trying to do is tell you what sort of thing it is. It tells you about quality, not about quantity. And so you'll see this, we'll talk about it more, but in Revelation, um, seven, most of us are familiar. In biblical literature, seven is like a perfect number. In the same way we think of ten as being complete one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ah, that feels good. For them, that's seven. Seven is their complete number. So six, it's like just off of seven. It's like uh, a disfigured perfection. It's supposed to be this, but now it's become blasphemed. It's twisted into this, which is where you get that 666. It's not perfect. It's a blaspheming of it. Or you get three and a half. Often in Revelation, they'll talk about three and a half a lot. It's not telling you about a specific time frame. Three and a half is half of seven. And so what it's telling you is if seven is a perfect time, Three and a half is a not perfect time. It's a troubled time. And so what you get with 10, 12 is like a num- another number of completion. 12 tribes of Israel, uh, 144,000, 12 was like in Jewish ideology what it meant to be home. 10 is incomplete. And so what you find here is that you're going to suffer persecution for 10 days. What the the author is using apocalyptic literature to say this time of suffering will not last forever. It's, an, it's a temporary time period. It will not stay this way for you for all times. So remain faithful, even to the point of death. And I will be with you. It's a message of encouragement to a small, persecuted church who are doing their best to just try and survive. Right? So it's relatively straightforward. This letter becomes challenging when we try to read it. Because we have to remember... This was not written for us. Fundamentally, this wasn't written for us. And when we come around language of persecution, honestly, it's really hard for us to read. And frankly, it's really hard for us to understand. Now, you might push back and be like, well, actually, persecution of Christians is growing. And that's true. Um, from like a global perspective, you may not realize this, but the, uh, the UK government recently commissioned a study to look at religious persecution around the world. That included every single religious minority. So that would be looking at Muslim, Hindus, Sikhs, Christians, like everybody altogether. Their findings were super interesting. It says, research consistently indicates that Christians are the most widely targeted Christian community. Today, 2018, still. Furthermore, the evidence suggests that acts of violence and other intimidation against Christians are becoming more widespread. So it's on a trajectory up. And so now when we read that, rightfully, we can begin to feel nervous. But this is where perspective matters. Where you're standing on the bungee cable really affects how you read this. And when we're standing on top and we read language of persecution, we have to be really careful what I call a persecution complex. Um, In the West, we do face difficulties. There's no doubt about it. I mean, if we look at the Israel Falau story that's recently broken out, we can see that it's incredibly complex to be a Christian in modern-day society and he is dealing with big repercussions of how he's articulated his faith. Rightly or wrongly, the repercussions are difficult, and it's easy for us to be like, yeah, we're gonna be more and more persecuted as Christians. I'd be wary of using that language because the government is not throwing any of us into jail. Even Israel Falau is not losing his job because the government is coming in to take it away from him. He's disputing his job with a private company and they're working it out together. And when we think about persecution, I know we're not under massive persecution. Want to know how I know? A couple of weeks ago, we held an open-air service down in Mount Drury that we got to use for virtually no cost, where in a massive amphitheater, we got to proclaim the message of Jesus, talk about his life, death, and resurrection, and the council were really happy with that event. They were stoked. They'd love for us to do it again. It's hard, and we need to be careful when we use language of persecution to apply that to ourselves when we're sitting on top of the, bun- on top of the bungee cable. Yes, we face some relational difficulties. Um, people may not like us. If you post something, you may get a 1,000 different comments on your Facebook feed. We have to remember, as Christians in the West, we can always delete our Facebook. There's the end of the persecution. Like, those messages don't get to us anymore. We just delete. Can we still get a job? Yep. Can we still see our families? Yep. Can we still buy property? Yep. We can do all those things. So I think we have to be wary when we read churches' letters like Smyrna, read about persecution, and then apply it to ourselves immediately, being like, yeah, we face persecution. God help us. Remember where we stand on that bungee tower. Really, in the West, we're doing okay. People may not like us, But the Bible never promised that people are going to like us. At least they're not jailing us or taking our stuff. And this is why we need to read this letter carefully, because for many in the world, the government is doing that. For many Christians in the world, they do genuinely face real and terrifying persecution. And when we read this letter, I want us to not read it thinking of ourselves as the Smyrnans, but perhaps we need to think of ourselves as the Ephesians or the Laodiceans, who are reading this communal mail and reading about the story of the Christians on the other side of the world. To give you context for that, I want to tell you a story about a small little country called Yemen. Um, Many of you may or may not be aware, Yemen's just, the arrow's there, it's just a small little country on the bottom of the Arab Peninsula. Um, In 2013, um, there was supposed to be a changeover in government from one political party to another, Um, the transition did not go well, and both parties ended up vying for control of the state. It led to a civil war in Yemen. And what happened in that civil war is Saudi Arabia began to get really nervous, um, because between the war and factions, there were some of those in those factions who were really loyal to Iran, and had strong connections with Iran as a nation. And so Saudi Arabia was nervous that Iran was gonna use this opportunity to gain a foothold of control in the peninsula. You'd have been like Saudi Arabia and Iran don't like each other. They're like (coughs) chalk and cheese, right? And so Saudi Arabia is nervous because if Iran takes over Yemen, then they have an enemy that's literally sharing a border with them. So Saudi Arabia starts getting involved with this war. They start backing one party, they start backing rebels, they start doing air raids. What that means is then you get Iran and those who are loyal to Iran who started backing the other militia. And so now you have two armies that are fighting who are backed by these huge political powers, who actually don't care at all about the nation. They just care about their own interests. If you take an even bigger step back, you find global superpowers who are also backing this war. America and the UK are consistently selling arms to Saudi Arabia. Most of the bombs that are being dropped on Yemen are American bombs, um, sold there very happily by our government, being like, yeah, this is great. Just do what you need to do. Um, Same with Iran is heavily backed by Russia. And a lot of the arms that they get are from Russia. So you have two superpowers who are vying for control in the Middle East by supplying two nations. And these two nations are supporting different factions of one small, tiny nation. And it has led to the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world is happening right now in Yemen. And who's the one who always bears the brunt of these wars? It's not the leaders. It's not these superpowers. It's the citizens, just the citizens. The ordinary people of Yemen are under incredible difficulty, incredible difficulty. Cholera is spreading. Um, The World Health Organization can't get aid there because different countries are blocking aid from entering into different warring factions because they're using it as a political power ploy and it's really difficult. In the midst of Yemen, this massive battleground between massive superpowers, you will have a small group of Christians before the Civil War, they, they reckon that there's probably around, roughly around 7,000, um, 7,000 Christians in Yemen. I think I actually might even have a slide for that. Yeah, I do. There are about 7,000 Protestants and Catholics in, in the country, and there were probably about 400 who came from a Muslim background. So they weren't born into it, but they actually converted. Now, in Yemen, conversion is illegal, um, prohibited by the government. You can't actually convert. Um, without repercussions, being jailed, being ostracized, losing your, literally losing your possessions, your house. The government can take it all if you convert. When we think about the letter to Smyrna, we should not think about ourselves in New Zealand. We should be thinking about Yemeni Christians. These are the ones who are hearing this message. These are the ones who need to understand, and that it's for them that it's so powerful. Can you imagine for these Yemeni Christians who are just stuck in the middle of a massive war where no one cares about them. It's the same way like Smyrna. They're this small minority who are stuck between these warring powers and Jews and the Romans and these massive superpowers. And to that community, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I have died and now I have come to life again. And that Jesus is the one who's speaking to that community there and then. And he tells them that you will suffer persecution. The devil will put some in prison to test you. But it will be for 10 days. This time period will not last. One of the key messages of Revelation over and over again that you see, last week we learned about the message of hold fast, which we can see about today. The other message of Revelation is that evil will not win in the end. The story of Revelation says at some point in time, the evildoers will not be on top anymore, but God's justice will come. Those who have murdered and killed will be put down, and those who have been low will be lifted up and exalted. And so that 10 days is an encouragement saying to the Yemeni Christians or to the Smyrnans, this will not be forever. So hold fast, and I will give you life as the victor's crown. It uses really interestingly that language as victor's crown Um, the victorious, it uses conquering language. It's the same language you'd use if you went to conquer a foreign people, right? And you smashed them. We were victorious. We have the victor's crown. If you went and conquered a foreign area, when you came back, they would give you a victor's crown. It's using all that language, but saying, nah, if you hold fast to the gospel, even if you die, you will be victorious because I, myself, Christ, died, but then came to life again. And I hold the power of death in my hands. So for them, can you hear how encouraging this is? And we need to remember that so much of revelation is not necessarily written to us on the top of the bungee cable, but to those who are down at the bottom being thrown which way in that by forces which they don't control. It's to those people that Jesus seems to always have a very special concern for. More than us who have things, and that's not to say we don't have poverty in New Zealand. We absolutely do. It's not to say we don't have difficulty in New Zealand. We absolutely do. But we need to be honest saying the scale of what we have it's not the scale to which exists. And we need to remember that. And so I want to land with um, this first bit where he talks about, I know your afflictions and I know your poverty, yet you are rich. And I think this is where we can hold on to something that actually means something to us today. So rather than just remembering that the Yemeni Christians exist and we should be praying for them and we should be thinking about them, we actually need to remember this statement. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. To that community who had nothing, Jesus says they have something that no one else has. To those who are suffering and in persecution and who are poor, Jesus says you have a richness that the other churches in this letter don't have. Smyrna doesn't have those wealth. Laodicea, which we'll get to at the end, which is arguably the wealthiest of all the church communities, they're not praised for having wealth. The Smyrnans are. And we have to remember that from these communities, they carry a wealth of the gospel that actually, in today's society, we need. So to give you some context for that, um, let's talk about Christianity. We often think of it as a white Western thing, eh? Uh, Typically, when you think of a Christian, it's normally a European-type person that comes into people's heads. And historically, that was true. Um, uh, Pew Research did some research, and in 1910, They found that 82% of all the Christians in the world lived what's in the called, like, the global north. So that would include uh, Europe, uh, North America, Australia, New Zealand. So what we think of as, like, Western countries or the global north. Um, 82% of Christians belong to those communities and 12% what would be in, like, the global south. So that would be South America, Africa, South and East Asia, um, the Pacific. 1910. Do you know where that's gone in 100 years? When we think of Christians, we normally think of a white Western person. Do you know how this looks in 2010, 100 years later? 39% of Christianity lives in what's still called the global north, and it's dropping consistently, year in, year out. Western Christians are becoming more and more of a minority in our community. You know where Christianity is thriving? In the global south, in the regions that don't have necessarily all the industrialization and wealth that we necessarily have. In the areas that face incredible persecution, there is where the church is growing. And if I'm honest, when we think about Revelation's letter, we know you're poor, but you are rich. We have to remember that I think the future of the church is actually going to come from here. And it's true. If you look at um, Europe, or particularly Europe and North America, which are uh, Europe especially, that is incredibly secular, where Christianity is dropping off a cliff uh, amongst white um, Western people. The only places it's holding fast is because it's bolstered by immigration. Um, Catholicism in France is only surviving because of immigrants moving into the country. Um, Here in New Zealand, Catholicism's numbers have held relatively steady because of influx of Filipino communities amongst us. Um, That would be true in America, uh, you'd have the rising rate of evangelicals actually are coming from Immigrants from South America and Central America. And they are the ones who are bolstering. So give it 10 years, give it 20 years, and the majority of church leaders in Western nations will be coming from non-Western backgrounds. We have to remember that they are rich. They carry something of the gospel that is easy for us to lose. When we stand on top of the platform in security and in wealth, and we'll find this as we look at the other churches, particularly Laodicea, we run the risk of losing the heart of the gospel. Doesn't say it always happens, but historically, the more comfortable a church becomes, the more it moves away from Jesus. And historically, what brings it back are by those who've come from difficulty, poverty, persecution. They understand something about the faithfulness of God that it's easy for us to forget. And so for us, as we look at Smyrna, when we think about our church, and we think about Tarange and the community, I think we need to be thinking internationally and we need to be thinking globally we need to be thinking about how to relate to the immigrants who are coming to Tauranga today. How do we love the immigrant communities, those who don't come from Western backgrounds? How do we enable them to share their faith amongst us? How do we learn from them? Because if Revelation is to be told, they have riches that I think we need to hear from. And it's a challenge for us. Um, If I can get the music team up, we'll just finish with one more song together. Um, This is a challenge for us. I don't know what the full answer is. Um, We are a new church, and when we're thinking about um, a global Christianity, we still have to figure out what that looks like for us. We don't have any global connections. We're not involved in any international missionaries. The closest connection we have is Bruce, um, who regularly takes teams to those places and works amongst those church communities. It's one of the huge growth areas we have, is how do we as Golden Sands Baptists, if we're going to take the message of Revelation to Smyrna, well, how do we learn from and listen to people from those communities? How do we learn and listen to those who are poor, yet are rich? Because they have a message we need to hold on to. I want to finish with James um, 2, verse 5, that I think is helpful for us to remember. Writing to that community, James says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? It's a challenging one for us today because of our perspective. Not all of us will be there, but it's a challenge. It's a gauntlet that I want to lay down for us in the future. How do we as Golden Sands Baptists continue to interact with, learn from, and interface with communities who are radically different from us, who come from different backgrounds, because the future of the church is there. And we have so much to learn from those communities. Does that make sense? So let's stand together.